0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Mary Beth Willard about her new book, Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Artists, which was published by Routledge in 2021. Dr. Willard is an associate professor of philosophy at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. She received her PhD from Yale University and writes primarily on metaphysics and aesthetics. She teaches courses on deductive logic, metaphysics, and existentialism, and she writes regularly for Aesthetics for Birds, a group blog of philosophers of aesthetics and art. Her first book, Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Artists, which we'll be discussing today, considers what we should do when we learn that an artist has acted immorally. One might argue that we ought to turn away from these works, but according to Dr. Willard, it's hard to find good reasons to do so. She claims that because most boycotts of artists won't succeed, there's no ethical reason to do so. Most of the time. She then contends that canceling artists is ethically risky because it encourages moral grandstanding. This is quite a provocative little volume, and I hope you enjoy our conversation about it today. Mary Beth Willard, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Well, I wonder if you might begin. I always begin these interviews by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So where are you from originally? Maybe how did you become interested in philosophy, which we could probably have an entire Uh hour-long conversation about. Tell us about any mentors you had in graduate school or along the way. Just kind of give us some of
1: your background, if you would. Oh, goodness. Where to start? Okay, so... (laughs) I feel like when you ask academics this, they always tend to give a list of like where they've been in academic institutions, yep, right? That's uh, true. But, uh, yeah. I, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh um, okay. in a suburb south of the city. And when I went to college, I, I was a very enterprising prospective chemistry major, actually. And uh, the university I went to, Notre Dame, had a philosophy requirement and a freshman seminar requirement. And I thought... Two birds with one stone. I'll get this humanities nonsense, uh, you know, out. And I took a class with uh, Mark Jordan. It was on ancient philosophy, which I'd never studied before. And it was on the pre-Socratics of all things. So here I am, you know, 18, reading Heraclitus and trying to figure out what the heck is going on with all of this. And I was totally hooked. And I feel like the next part of the story should be, and I changed my major to philosophy right away. And I knew what I wanted to do, but that's not actually true. I stayed as like a biochem major for another three semesters and then realized I hated lab. And at that point, I'm like, Well, I'd taken another philosophy class and I'd done pretty well in that because there was a two philosophy requirement. And then I changed my major and I ended up with a double major in philosophy and what they called computer applications, which I think was an attempt to make sure liberal arts people could get hired. Today, we'd probably call it data science. Um, And I had no plans for grad school. I was going to go and get a job. And then about a year into actually having a job, I'm kind of like, I miss this philosophy stuff. So I took the GRE and then applied to grad school. So it's kind of like I stumbled forward into ending up as a, a, a philosopher. I feel like a lot of people, like they knew they wanted to do this. And I'm sort of like, eh, we'll see if it works out. And it kind of did. Um, yeah, so I did my PhD at Yale, as you told everybody already. And uh, there I worked mostly with Michael Della Rocca, which might sound a little strange because he obviously uh, focuses on Spinoza and early modern philosophers, which means I know way too much about the early moderns for anybody who actually does like contemporary aesthetics, but it's okay. But he was a very good mentor in terms of like just encouraging ideas and being a really good person to work with. And uh, my dissertation involved a little bit of philosophy of language and a little bit of metaphysics, because I was interested in the metaphysics of how we think about fictional characters, like what does it mean? Uh, to have sentences about Sherlock Holmes be true, even though he doesn't exist? How do you uh, think of a character as a work in progress? And uh, so, yeah, I've always had one foot in metaphysics and uh, one foot in aesthetics. Um, but the story of this book starts quite a bit later, uh, because I wasn't thinking about ethics or immoral art really into uh, 2017. Um, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, Beyond that, yeah, I graduated in the, during the uh, great financial crisis and uh, this little university that I'd never heard of in Utah. I didn't even know that like there was a mountain on the campus and there is. Um, I'm told that when I was here on my fly out, like the look on my face was pretty funny because I flew in at night. I got my flight was really delayed and it was super cloudy and I got up in the morning and it was still cloudy. And I went to campus, did my teaching demo, met with the Dean, walked outside at lunch and went, there's a mountain on this campus. Um, because It was the first time I'd realized anywhere about like where I was. It was just all airports and campuses, but yeah, I've been here 11 years now and, uh, Started skiing, so I think I'm stuck because I don't think uh, my kids will move anywhere that there isn't a ski resort um, within 25 minutes of the house. So, I feel pretty lucky overall.
0: Uh, well, you already kind of set up my next question perfectly. I, you know, always want to ask, or I like to ask, uh, how books come about. I, I think it's a fascinating topic. In your case, I actually wanted to ask, not only did you, ha- like, how did you come to write this particular book on this particular subject, especially given the background that you just described, but I'm particularly interested in whether this was commissioned. I know it's part of this Routledge series that, you know, that is a whole bunch of topics, why it's okay to all sorts of various things, or have you pitched it or volunteered to write it? Kind of a two-pronged question about how it came about.
1: Good. So I'll start with where the subject starts about, and then I'll tell you how the book contract happened. And both of them, I think, are a little bit strange. So the uh, interest in Immoral Artists for me started at the uh, uh, American Society for Aesthetics annual meeting in New Orleans in November of 2017. And this was right when all of the Me Too stuff was really breaking. So everything in the news is about Harvey Weinstein, and it's about uh, all these other actors and uh, you know, celebrities who are getting uh, caught up in the Me Too movement. And Alex King, who runs Aesthetics for Birds, was talking with uh, Justin Weinberg, who runs Daily News, so the two big philosophy blogs. And she was saying like, hey, we want to do a crossover thing about this immoral artist and aesthetics or artwork and stuff. And we're hanging out in the ballroom after one of the talks. She's like, do you want to write this? And she was talking to me and Matt Stroll and we said like, yeah, we think we actually have an interesting take on it because everybody's talking about how we have to cancel these guys. And we kind of wanted to stand up for aesthetic value and the aesthetic life. So we jointly wrote this, uh, blog post. And it was a really, I just remember, it cause it was such a fun weekend. We were running around new Orleans, eating all of the things. So it's like, let's go for beignets and coffee and like writing on a laptop. And Matt, uh, is editing and freaking out about like whether we're going to get canceled. And I'm like, let's just go for it. And like, then going back in and taking out of the snarky jokes. Anyhow, we end up with this little thing. Um, It hits daily news. It gets linked around a little bit. And then a couple years later, we're asked to write a follow-up on it, and we do that. And then here's what happens um, as far as... So that's the interest of the story. And if you actually look at like the second piece we wrote, it's almost an outline of the book that comes out of it. I went back and was looking at it. I'm like, wow, I really did have this whole thing kind of in mind, except for the sixth chapter, um, when I was first thinking about it. Um, But how the book actually came about was the... um, Eastern APA in Vancouver. So this was 2019 and I actually didn't go. And I'm telling this because I think this is a really good story of how, how somebody can be an ally. Um, and, uh, Matt was at the, you know, the reception with all of the, you know, book editors and things like that where they go around and people are pitching ideas. And, uh, he said, Hey, uh, I, ha- I have the text message from him. This is like, just, and it just says, Yo, I met with the Rutledge editor running their series, Why It's Okay to uh, Short Books Meant for a Crossover Audience. Um, you know, He was uh, trying to do, agree to write a, a different book, and he said, I suggested for you why it's okay to listen to Michael Jackson. And so um, the editor got in touch with me a couple days later and said, Do you want to submit a pitch? So the first version of the book is actually just very very narrowly focused on Michael Jackson because the Leaving Neverland documentary had just come out and the idea of like, and there's so many think pieces and journalistic hot takes about, you know, can we listen to Michael Jackson? Or I think my favorite thing, like, can we listen to Michael Jackson, but like only to his early career before he started abusing people? Like, is that the way that we can draw the line? And I think there's a really interesting question here. So yeah, I kind of had a project project tossed in my direction a little bit. And uh, I was interested in it. Um, the first, uh, the first um, pitch and the first draft of the book was a lot more focused on Michael Jackson. Um, after I wrote the first draft, I uh, emailed Andrew and I said, I need to expand this. I can't have it just be about Michael Jackson, because he's a really easy case. He's crazily Rich he's also dead, and that takes away a lot of the interesting ethical questions about what we can do to change things as consumers or how we can respond so the uh book expanded a little bit um and uh focused on different artists uh different questions um, it completely got rewritten. The sixth chapter was originally a very punchy like teaching oriented summary of the entire book. It was the kind of thing it was like you know how to assign this to a class in 8,000 words. And I cut the chapter because after I changed the focus, it seemed a little repetitive. And so then the last chapter ended up being about aesthetic value and projects and how uh, having an aesthetic project can make us think about, uh, new avenues of responding to somebody ethically, right? Um, By using our artwork to criticize somebody, for example, or talking in communities of people about like, what do you do about Woody Allen and and, uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's kind of how the book happened. Um, So it is part of the series and the series pitch, I think for Andrew was a little bit more, uh, I think, I mean, the original pitch was something like, everyday people's views are finally defended by philosophers, right? So like, interesting questions and ethics and aesthetics that you don't expect to get taken up by um, mainstream Mm -hmm. philosophy. Uh, But we there wasn't really a whole lot of editorial oversight in terms of what we actually wrote. So my book is why it's okay to enjoy the work of immoral artists, but it's kind of a take where I'm like, well, most of the time, it's okay, but you know, don't be a jerk. And uh, really, what I want to do is encourage some reflection. Um, So it's a very, uh, you know, moderate takeout. Matt did a similar thing. His book is why it's okay to love bad movies. And it's really like this, you know, aesthetic love note of like, why bad Hollywood movies are this source of creativity and expression that you won't find elsewhere. So I think we kind of ran away with the titles a little bit, but uh, it was a lot of fun to write.
0: Well, I want to ask you several follow-up questions. I I think this is perfect. You've set up nicely uh, a lot of the things that I want to kind of dig into about the book, about the title, about the artists that you cover in this book. But you referred uh, to the sixth chapter getting kind of added uh, at the end. And, you know, for those who are listening who are interested maybe in the process of how books get written, it is very interesting how things shift. Or as, as Mary Beth is saying, you know, you begin with something that's just maybe a short essay and then you realize you've hit on something that maybe can be much longer. But let me give our listeners a little bit of a sense of of the six chapters in the book and the topics that you kind of cover and the punchiness of these titles in and of themselves. So Mary Beth has already hinted there are six chapters in this book total. Um, The first one is called, Sorry, No Easy Answers Here. The second one is Why Artists probably won't notice your boycott. The third one is Epistemic Injustice, Jerks, Boycotts, and You. The fourth is When the Art Just Won't Separate from the Artist. The fifth is Hashtag Cancel Everything, and then in parentheses, We Should Probably Set Twitter on Fire Just to Be Safe. And then the last one, the sixth, is Aesthetic Lives as Ethical Lives. So I want to kind of work through this book, um, but before I do that, I want to begin maybe finally asking you a question about the book proper now. Um, and it's it's a silly question to ask because I know the answer having read the book, but I think it'll get us a good amount of the way into what you do here if I ask it anyway, and you just kind of, you know, bat it around a little bit, and then we can dive into some particulars. So the question is, do you, Mary Beth, really think it's okay to enjoy the work of immoral artists? So,
1: most of the time, in most contexts, yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, having set that up, and and Mary Beth does say that towards the beginning of the book, and she, I think you say something right afterwards, like, I know this might be a shocking answer, but you know, let me explain and take you through all the reasons why I believe this this to be true. Now, when you a- answer my question about how the book came about a little bit, um, you refer to the title, and I'm I'm so. I'm intrigued by this title, not only because it's part of this series and there' are, you know, a bunch of these books to enjoy that, like you said, are, are written for a popular audience in a way that's very manageable. they're very digestible. they're not super long books, you know that I read this um, in a couple of days on a series of flights actually, which is it's quite nice to you know take a slim volume with you on a trip and be able to say you finished it when you got home. But one of the things that I was so struck by, from getting the book and all the way to now having finished it was the enjoy in the title. And as I was reading it, I kept kind of waiting for you to address this idea of enjoyment or maybe kind of define what you mean by it in the context of the artworks you discuss. But you never, you don't quite go there. You get very close a couple of times. But I just kept thinking, is is this about enjoying? Because you talk and you, everyone just heard me say in the chapter titles, you talk so much about boycotting and censoring and canceling immoral artists. So I kind of wondered, you know, you had to make it fit within the, the series title, Why It's OK. But I wondered about like possible other titles. Maybe did you think about calling it Why It's OK to Engage with the work of immoral artists or was it always enjoy?
1: So the title came about very late. So remember, initially, it was Why It's OK to Listen to Michael Jackson and that was that was going to be the title they thought it would be really catchy and so then once I decided I wasn't really interested in writing that much about Michael Jackson and that the editor was okay with it it kind of went without a title for a little bit and it was one of the assistants that suggested when I'm like I, go, I don't know what we're going to call this thing he's like how about why it's okay to enjoy the work of immortal artists and at that point I was just like sure let's go with that um To your question, though, I think engage is probably uh, more accurate, right? Um, Sometimes it is enjoyment, right? And if you're thinking about something like Michael Jackson, I mean, Michael Jackson's dance music, right? You're supposed to, you know, do the little zombie arms to a thriller and you're supposed to, uh, you know, try to moonwalk and all of the things that we uh, do with that. It's dance music. It's supposed to be fun. But I think sometimes it's just engagement, right? And that could be contemplation. That could be, you know, appreciation. That could be sharing. That could be... uh, making other aesthetic decisions. I'm really interested in how aesthetics isn't just like the kind of caricature of the the solitary person listening with headphones or watching something by themselves. I mean, I, I obviously can't speak for anybody, but I think most of us uh, enjoy art or engage with art often in the community of others. Right. So I think one of the really important considerations that I try to address in the book is that it's not just a decision to listen to R. Kelly, for example, it's a decision to, play R. Kelly at a campus dance, right? And those are two very different questions. So engage is probably closer to the spirit of a lot of what I'm talking about. Um, But I think it's often really bound up with enjoyment because that's why we're into art and other aesthetic practices in the first place. They're fun, right? They bring people together. They allow us to express our ideas and our individuality and uh, create. A lot of the time, right? There's often a lot of focus on uh, passive consumption of art. And uh, I didn't get into this quite in the the amount that I wanted to in the book. But one of the issues for me is often thinking about what do people do with the art that they love, right? Uh, They write fan fiction, they draw fan art, they share it with friends, they undertake all of these activities that don't really fit with the, like, the sort of passive model of like, I read the book and I enjoyed it. It's more like I read the book and I was inspired to try to uh, write my own story. Or I remember a couple of years ago, um, it was the first season when uh, Game of Thrones came out. Um, A friend of mine and I would get together every week and we'd watch the show. And for the finale of the first season, we decided because somebody on the internet had posted like a recipe for one of the main character's favorite desserts. So it's like, we had way too much beer and we are going to make lemon cakes and watch the finale of game of Thrones. And that's kind of a way of engaging with the show, right? It's bringing people together. It's, you know, pursuing creativity in the kitchen. I don't think the beer fits in here at all, but yet the idea that this is not just, um, uh, it's not just passive contemplation. And I think that that's, um, one factor that I think is really important in thinking about how we, uh, engage with the art of immoral artists.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you say a lot of that, because I think I think so often what you it strikes me as an art historian that you are discussing or describing is engagement or appreciation. And there, like you just said, there are definitely instances where it it, it passes through to another level that that is, you know, definitely enjoyment. Um, but I, I I was struck by that as I was reading it. And I, I I'm probably going to continue thinking about it. The other element of the title that I started to wonder about probably about halfway through the book was artists. (laughs) Um, And maybe again, this is me, you know, speaking as an art historian, I can't help but be what I am and and bring the the background that I do, just like you bring the, the philosophical background that you do. And I started to wonder, maybe this book should have been titled Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Men, because so many of the cases that you put forward are, well, they're all men for the most part. And, and the, it's questionable, and you even refer to this a couple of times, their status as artists. So the main cases that you focus on in the book, though there are certainly others beyond this list, are, as you just said, Michael Jackson looms large. Harvey Weinstein makes several appearances. Bill Cosby has kind of a chapter devoted to him. Aziz Ansari, Louis C.K., R. Kelly. And then there's a little bit kind of heavy in the last chapter on Paul Gauguin, who, you know, is probably the most artisty of the artists that you name. And I wondered, like, and I think you say this, are comedians, you know, like Louis C.K., artists? Can we think of Harvey Weinstein as a producer of films, as an artist? And I kind of, you know, what I was expecting the book to be or what I was hoping it to be because I wanted it to be about artists like Gauguin, it wasn't quite that. So was there any contemplation, is it morphed from the Michael Jackson project to this about, about calling these guys artists?
1: So I wanted to be as inclusive as possible with the word art. And part of that is, um, part of it is because the questions that people have been interested in, um, since 2017 and the specific focus on the Me Too, v- too movement, um, are cases where the artists in question are entertainers, right? Weinstein's an interesting case because, uh, and I, I don't remember if I, if this story made it into the book or not, um, but one of the questions was, like, how do you feel about movies that he produced? And for me, I'm like, I don't care that he produced them. Like the producer credit is not something that... Really influences my interpretation of the artwork, and so one of the the uh, stories, and like, again, I I honestly don't remember whether this made into the book, was that I was talking with the editor about uh, um, you know all the cases I'm using, and I mentioned Goodwill Hunting, which was um, produced by Weinstein, and his first response was, "What did Matt Damon do?" And I'm like, "Matt Damon didn't do anything," but that's really interesting because your your question was, uh, or the, the the issue is the producer, right? And like he gets a lot of money from this. But the artist is uh, Damon, right? The face of the production is is the actor. And so like writers, producers, I don't know, cameramen, uh, you know, grips, I don't know (laughs) what goes into movies, but those guys are part of uh, making art, but they're kind of not the face of the problem, right? Um, Okay. Back to where I was going with this is that I was thinking um, that when we're talking about the Me Too movement, we are talking pretty broadly uh, about Hollywood, we're talking about celebrity culture, and that's mixed in with this. Um, The other reason that I didn't focus on the classic fine arts um, is that I think a lot of the questions, um, Gauguin aside, because there's been a lot of discussion in museum and curation and artistic circles about what to do with his um, legacy. A lot of times it's almost more like interesting trivia, right? Like, Caravaggio is a bad guy, right? Like, he... Probably murdered a pimp, and then you know had to flee to another city, and you know murder's pretty bad, but nobody cares about that at all, right? It's like almost an interesting historical thing, like what these crazy Renaissance guys got up to, rather than a call for action. So I think uh, the focus in a lot of art being. Uh, or rather the Me Too movement being on present day entertainers where we feel like we have a connection to them, where we feel like there's something we could possibly do. And I was really interested in the idea that we tend to think of this in the language of like risk being an ethical consumer, right? The nearest analogy is that, um, the other reason I didn't want to, uh, I focused on the, the more pop culture stuff is that I didn't want to be a gatekeeper with respect to what counts as art. Um, because at least in philosophy, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of ink spilled over whether something's art, what makes something art is there's an institutional theory of art or a cluster theory of art. And I just wanted to say like, sometimes I think it's just, you're basically saying this is worth preserving or worth attending to aesthetically. And I'm not comfortable saying, well, you know, okay, comedians aren't really artists. I'm like, well, we still have the question about what to do about all of Bill C- C- Cosby's back catalog catalog. I think you could make a case, though, that um, jokes can count as like miniature little art forms, right? There's a regularity to them, a pattern, there's a rule of three, you can uh, make sense of it that way. But uh, I think I mean, the decision for the book was also to keep it very accessible. And when I talked to people about like, I'm writing a book about immoral artists, people asked me about Michael Jackson, they asked me about Cosby, they asked me about uh, headlines, they asked me about like, whether we should cancel people in it. and not so much about again. Um, although I think uh, Gauguin himself is also uh, really interesting for a yeah. variety of reasons.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I, I guess this goes to you know who you're talking to and who you ask if you uh, if you'd said you were working on this book in in my circle, you know Caravaggio as you just named in Gauguin, a, a couple of others would have would have loomed large. I want to ask you. About something that um, that I was struck by right away in the very first chapter. Sorry, no easy answers here. You know these, these great sort of punchy uh, chapter titles that get get good a good amount into what you do in each one, but I was struck right away here by what I perceive to be certain kind of assumptions that you make that then end up perpetuating over the course of the book. So in this first chapter, you claim that in the cases at the center of the Me Too movement, the content of the art is set to one side and that the ethical problem with the artworks that you discuss really isn't driven by what they're portraying or what they endorse, but arises, as you say, from the fact that an immoral person made the art. And I immediately went, hmm. Is, is that true? And I guess I just, what I want to ask is, why were you so committed to kind of sidestepping the fact that there are a lot of cases where the immoral artist's outlook and their behavior is, is fundamentally embedded in the work itself, the work that, as the title of the book says, we are enjoying and, and that you're arguing we should
1: be fine with enjoying. Oh, good. So uh, there's a couple of questions, one sort of strategic and one sort of uh, content wise. So in within philosophy, there's been a decent amount of work done on the problem of um, immoral content in work. Right. Um, James Harold has a um, book called Dangerous Art came out in twenty twenty. Um, about, and that, and that book is a very broad overview of like lots of ways that art can be immoral, right? So it could be immoral in terms of its production. It could be immoral in terms of what it's expressing or in terms of like what it does to people or any, any number of reasons. And so one thing I wanted to to do, um, when, and the, the reason I framed it this way is that I think in a lot of cases, um, and specifically at the case, the cases that the Me Too movement are about not too many people were thinking that there was a problem with say Michael Jackson's songs or his lyrics, right? Like none of those seem to be about, uh, the sexual assault of children, right? Uh, most of the, uh, jokes for Cosby, for example, very family friendly, very, uh, wholesome, very working in a tradition of like American fatherhood and all sorts of, uh, you know, presumably wholesome things like that. The question is really about, whether their behavior means that we can still enjoy their work. Right. And as I argue in the, in the Cosby chapter, I do think that there, there is a case to say that how they behave sometimes influences how we interpret their work. But what I didn't want was to take cases where uh, like uh, the artwork itself, you know, is, to be morally offensive or something like that. And I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. And the, the reason I think that it's interesting is that I feel like philosophy kind of knows what to say about the cases where the artwork is immoral. I mean, people don't always agree, right? But you can say, oh, well, it's expressing an immoral attitude, or it's, um, you know, glorifying something that, uh, you know, shouldn't be praised, or it's, uh, you know, leads to harm, or it's an aesthetic flaw, right? You, if you have to imagine that infanticide is good, then you're going to not be able to engage with fiction properly so you have this really um, uh, rich literature about morality within fiction and how it makes us think but the artist um, like classically you just say oh well that's the artist's personal life right that has nothing to do with how we think about their artwork right that's uh, you know separate the art from the artist is the 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 first slogan that you kind of have to go up against and thinking about it when I was uh, writing the book I'm like well these are cases where like sometimes we reevaluate the work right um i'm uh claire Daterer has this wonderful um aside in her piece on woody allen for example where he says you know this this man is known I'm, i'm paraphrasing here for his you know sensitivity to moral ambiguity in everything except for basically whether it's okay for him to date teenagers, right? And once you realize that, like, for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm done. Like, I I can't handle it anymore, right? So I I don't want to preclude the possibility of looking at their life and then using it to reevaluate their work. What I want to say, though, is that most of the time, people when they watched, you know, Woody Allen films weren't really struck by that, right? Um, They, you know, lots of people really love Woody Allen and they don't think like, man, it's really creepy that he's, you know, always with a much beautiful younger woman, you take that as just kind of part of how you make movies in the 70s and 80s, and then you can reinterpret it. So what I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, I mean, for something like Cosby, right, you could think that if I just showed you the Cosby show, right, and you didn't know anything about him, or the uh, recordings of his stand-up that my parents had on vinyl, which I, you know, listened so much to as a kid, none of that suggests anything, right, like none of what he did like is justified by that, and I think that's different from Louis C.K. Um, but I still think that there's something interesting to say there, right? So you can't just say like, "Well, the art stands by itself." I'm like, "Well," except that it kind of doesn't, right? Because we do care about this, right? And so maybe we're all making a mistake. Um, but as I argue, like, I don't think we are. I think you can look at what the artist is doing and reinterpret the work, and I think sometimes the work comes out worse for that. Um, I've been following lately uh, uh, people who are criticizing JK Rowling um, for her uh, recent stance on uh, transgender uh, individuals and her unfortunate tendency to fan the flames on Twitter, I'd say. But a lot of people are going back and looking at the books and specifically like the way she understands like justice and morality within Hogwarts and being like, man, she was never good about difference or she was never great about this or you know, the things that we thought we read into the books we were reading into, and maybe, you know, this was never there all along. How many of her bad guys look like, you know, caricatures of, you know, medieval ideas of goblins and things like that, right? Uh, So you can, I think, revisit um, an author's work or an artist's work in light of what you know know about them. Uh, But I also think that they are distinct questions. And I think that, I mean, it would be really easy if we could say... Uh, look, this person made immoral art anyway. I already had reason to reject it. But I think the hard cases and the ones that are really philosophically interesting are the ones where the art seems like it's still okay, right? It's But we know that the person who made it was bad in mm-hmm. a significantly uh, moral sense.
0: Mm-hmm. In that sense, it seemed like the last chapter where you do talk about Paul Gauguin, who I think is a great example of an artist where his behavior, in terms of, as you talk about, leaving his wife behind in Europe, his five children, in order to marry 13 and 14 year old girls in Tahiti and paint them nude. <laughs> and these are the works that are so often up in museums. You know, he's a really good case where. The, the content of the works is a clear indicator of of the immoral behavior and that it's hard to unstick the two and the enjoyment, I guess, becomes questionable in that yeah. case.
1: I mean, Gauguin is a really tough case, right? I, I mean, and I think it's why why Gauguin is always the case, right? Other artists, you know, like Eric Gill, for example, horrible, horrible things that he did doesn't seem to affect his sculpture. But Gauguin's uh, paintings, you know, And also like the colonial interest in primitivism. Right. And saying like, well, you know, I mean, he's not going to New York to paint 13 and 14 year old girls in the nude or, you know, marry them and abandon their kids too. Right. He's he's kind of a jerk. Right. And it's definitely in the artwork. And it's definitely because that kind of thing was at least acceptable enough that people were like, well, let's exhibit these, you know, this this lost eden and and look at these paintings right
0: well he had a really hard time getting
1: those exhibited in his lifetime i mean one of the things that's really interesting for me is thinking about like just how how contingent it all is right the idea that this was kind of a a trendy i don't want to say trendy is the wrong word but this idea that primitivism was appealing right so then there's people are interested in this. So he's like, well, this is what I've got to do to make my career. And then that influences how other people think about this. Right. So there's not for, for the art historian. And I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm preaching badly to the choir here. You know, this <laughs> but thinking about how, uh, how you present that. Right. Cause it's not like you can just say like, Oh, pretend Gokan never happened. Well, he did. Right. And he influenced people and he influenced artists working um, Pacific artists working today. you are saying like, Hey, Um, And I've uh, looked at uh, Catherine Verkau's work a little bit. Um, She's an art historian uh, based somewhere in New Zealand, I believe. I don't remember which university off the top of my head. But in an interview that she's helpfully posted on YouTube or a talk that she posted on YouTube, the artists are basically saying, like, please don't ban Gauguin because that's the only reason that people who don't know much about art take us seriously. Like once they look at our work they recognize the value of it, but we need Gogan as like a reason for people to be interested in what Pacific artists are doing, right? So you see this kind of transformative thing. It's like, sure, he's a jerk, but because he's a jerk and he's well-known, these artists can get attention that they might not otherwise get from the mainstream art world, which I think is um, an interesting wrinkle in how we, we ought to respond to the problem. Yeah, a
0: course. wrinkle indeed. Yeah. I wanna push forward into chapter two, Um, which is titled, Why Artists Probably Won't Notice Your Boycott. And this is where you really dig into kind of, you know, considering whether we're ethically required to boycott immoral artists and to punish as a means of punishing them for their misdeeds or as a means of supporting their victims or um, to avoid being complicit in their behavior. You kind of hit this from a number of different angles. There's There's a lot in this chapter. And... I found this idea that you put forward about uh, us as consumers and saying that our power is very limited, specifically because we're not very important to artists. I found that quite interesting. You say flat out at one point, quote, they matter to us, but we don't matter to them. (laughs) And I thought, oh, really? You know, excuse me, that's, you know, that's interesting. And it made me wonder, do you know many artists or have you talked to a lot of them in my experience with them and also with kind of the museums and galleries that that show their work that promote them that make them famous and successful people's opinions matter a lot there's a lot of power especially in in kind of the collective that is the museum going public so i wondered where does that fit into all this all right so
1: um good that's a really good question so I think what I would say to this is that you should really focus on thinking about this as an individual, right? Because the the way I I was thinking about this and the way I tried to set it up in the second chapter is wondering, like, is there like an ethical obligation for me to say, stop listening to Michael Jackson, right? Michael Jackson's a really bad case in any way because he's dead and his estate has so much money that it's not even clear where it would go. Uh, you know, what the what the marginal value of my one extra Spotify listen would do. Um, but I find that that's actually often the case we find ourselves in, right? Where there's, you know, as one of my friends put it recently in a publication, many are too rich, and many are too dead, right, <laughs> for us to actually have an influence on their behavior. But that's often how we talk about it, right? So when I was um, uh, drafting the chapter, and then part of the book, a lot of people were talking about the Leaving Neverland documentary and the idea that like the ethical fan has to respond to this by doing something, right? By refusing to listen to Michael Jackson or refusing to um, you know, play his music or not introducing it to their kids. And so part of me was thinking like, okay, I can see the symbolic importance of that. And I try to treat that in chapter three, but let's think about this from like a, you know, collective action sort of Perspective, right? Because we know that, you know, for example, if you were to actually to have a large um, social media movement, like the Me Too movement was very briefly, that does make people care. People do care what people think, right? But now you are thinking, like, you know, two years on, right? And you learn of an artist's immoral behavior, and you say, okay, I can do whatever I want, but am I ethically required? To boycott this artist. And the idea is just like, it's an extra, like, think of how small your contribution is, you know, the four thousandths of a cent that your listen would give to Michael Jackson. And it's so tiny in most cases that unless you have some kind of assurance, I think that your action will meaningfully be part of a larger collective action, right? That there's no requirement for you to do it, right? So it's, it's a fairly narrow claim, right? Uh, is that you're not ethically required to boycott it, because at least on uh, that argument doesn't give you a good reason to do it, you're not going to change their behavior, you're not going to punish them. And part of the reason I uh, get, dedicated so much time to this was the the numerous media articles and you know, hot takes and news reports that made it feel kind of like, this is sort of being like an ethical consumer. Like, we're, like it's like eating fair trade chocolate, right? Or uh, buying free range eggs. Uh, the idea that there's um, you know, a good you could be doing. And to think about it, right? Like if I could stop an artist from harming somebody or you know, serve out punishment that the justice system didn't give, Not listening to music. I mean, that would be an incredible power. But I think just as an individual consumer, um, it is kind of outsized, right? And um, as you you quoted from the book where I said, like, they matter a lot to us, we don't matter much to them. Um, Yeah, I think I'll stand by that. I mean, it's, it's often disproportionately the case, right? I mean, if you listen to a lot of music, right, you know, you probably have, you know, it's been the soundtrack to your life, right? You have certain memories associated with it. You know, the artist got you through real hard times or, you know, you listened to something on repeat while you were finishing your dissertation or whatever the story is for you and that artist. Um, But like that's a lot more time that you've invested that they haven't. Right. So I think, I mean, this is, this is like putting on my very bad amateur psychology hat, but I think a lot of what drives it is it's kind of like I cared about this. I loved what you did. And then you turned out to be a jerk. I feel like I've wasted my time. Right. The artist does not have that kind of emotional engagement with the fans. Like maybe as a collective, they'd rather be loved than hated. They don't want, you know, their museum show to be canceled or something. They care about what people think, but at the level of one individual moving them to be a better person, which is often how this comes about. Um, and especially in the context of social media, right? Like, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be, um, how should I put it? Uh, too pessimistic about the promise of collective action right but if you look at the successful ones in history they required a lot more organization than a hashtag and that's often from the perspective of the end consumer all you're seeing so
0: yeah yeah i felt like what was interesting about this too this argument within within this chapter is kind of where it led you and you end up going some really interesting places in this chapter you end up sort of including arguing that giving up meat is essentially not worth it because, again, it's such a small individual contribution that it ends up not mattering much on its own. And you say that it makes sense to contribute to a collective goal only if we can be assured others will join us. And I think I wrote in the margin, danger, danger. I know, like I'm (laughs) worried about this, right? Because like, I mean. I just thought that could go such... And that's such a dangerous argument to make because it strikes me that you could use that as a reasoning for for saying it's okay to be so many bad things, including you know racist, and you could use that as a justification for why you should be able to keep your guns, even though there are people shooting you know children in schools. I mean, like, how can you know how can you go there? I guess in this context, without realizing or, or avoiding. It being extrapolated out to these cases and used co-opted in that horrible
1: way good good um so i will point out that i think uh i think my argument goes the other way because there are people making these these arguments that you know maybe we don't have an obligation to um uh say for example stop eating meat um and the argument is um very similar um not surprising because i read it I was writing the book uh that if you think about like the The supply chain that it takes to get a hamburger right and the small amount of um the very limited power that the individual consumer has right and you say okay so we agree that uh factory farming is bad um but one of the um downsides of having such a complicated uh industrial farming system is that it's not really sensitive to the actions of what individuals are doing, right? So it's not—it's not like uh, I can go up to the farmer and say, you know, I would—I would buy your chickens if you treated them better, right? They arrive at the store in a plastic package, and I, you know, if I buy chicken, uh, then I'm giving the money. If I don't buy chicken and I buy something else, that like the it's a really bad uh, let's say uh, signal to noise ratio, right? Like um, the idea that I'm effectively communicating that I'm concerned about animal welfare, I think is very small. Um, And so I do worry about this, but I think I take the worry in a a different direction. Like, I don't think we know how to solve collective action problems. And I think that's part of the problem, right? Like we have a lot of problems, most of the big ones facing us right now, climate change, animal welfare, you know, uh, you mentioned um, gun control are all cases, even like just voting, right? (laughs) Uh, Are all cases where the individual doesn't have a lot of power. And I, I want to say that, like, I don't want to, um, I see the danger, right? Like the danger, I, I want to write danger in the margins too. But I don't want to say that, well, it doesn't apply because, well, because why, right? Um, why isn't it dangerous? I think the problem is that we have big problems that require collective action in order to solve and that we are told or encouraged to think of this as like, we can solve this with individual choice right so it is demonstrably bad for the environment that we consume animals in the way that we do right not great for them either but let's just take the environmental cost Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so what do we say do we say regulate them do we say go after the institutions do we say change the market incentives or do we say it's your fault for going to the grocery store, you should eat less. And, I, and so I think one thing I would say is that a lot of these problems are institutional problems, and institutional problems require institutional solutions. And to get back to the subject of art, I think that's true there too, right? If you think, look, what did we really want to happen to Michael Jackson? And I mentioned this at the end, I'm like, nowhere in my top 10 of things that I think should happen would be that like he should be being boycotted 20 years after his death. Like He should have gone to jail, right? He should have been he should have gone to jail in 1992 or whenever it was. And what we needed that is, we needed institutions to take victims seriously. We needed, you know, prosecutions to happen. We needed, um, you know, we needed we needed our institutions to work properly. And I think a lot of the frustration, again, uh, amateur uh, psychologist hat again, is that we're trying to solve with. Kind of like individual consumer measures something that never should have been our issue in the first place you know the first time you know weinstein sexually assaulted somebody she she should have been able to go to the cops and have something happen Um, or the culture on the set should have been just like yeah we don't work with guys like that so it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen right and so um where you see danger and i agree with the danger i want to say you can't solve a collective action problem though by turning it into an individual solution, right? It's still a collective action problem. And that's why they're so hard to solve, right? Because I think if we all recognize like, I mean, think think about it like this, if you thought legitimately that like, yeah, we do have a moral obligation to not listen to the art of immoral, uh, enjoy the art of immoral artists, right? Enjoy the work of immoral artists like, we'd get the feedback right away, we'd be like, Oh, yeah, we just don't do it. And then and then they're good, right? Or then they're punished. And we don't see any of that. So I think the problem is, um, how do we fix our institutions? And that's the probably the real question, which I you know, admittedly, I don't really take up in the book. But the idea of, you know, for most of us, the work that we can do is quite a bit smaller, right? So maybe if it's, you know, your friend, at the local concert, right? At the, you know, local band competition or whatever. I don't know. Imagine like your 80s high school montage, whatever it is. If he's sexually harassing people, yeah, there you have an obligation to do something. I'm less convinced that uh, this is anything, like, it's just too far. The causal chains are too thin. And um, the idea that I want to take is not so much like, there's nothing we can do, do what you want. But like, this is the wrong way of thinking about it. Like thinking about this as like, a different kind of consumption will solve this problem. Like that's not what's going to solve the problem and because it's not going to solve the problem. There's no ethical import, but I, I, so I wouldn't take it as like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't care about collective action things. I'm just saying that trying to reduce it to an individual obligation is not actually what's going to, uh, what's going to solve the problem. So mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I, th- I thought it was interesting because at the end of this chapter, or I guess it's later in the chapter. I don't know if it's at the very end, but you you do end up saying, and I found this very poignant. We need to change not the culture at large, but ourselves. And I thought, you know, that's that's so interesting and goes a little bit against what you were saying in terms of you know that that giving up the artworks of immoral artists is ethically pointless from the perspective of punishing them, at least because, because we're so powerless on an individual level. But I thought, yeah, aren't there really positive effects to giving up these artworks that might be had for each of us ourselves? It isn't just about punishing people always, but about you know living a moral life, trying to do good in the world, and doesn't positive change have to start Mm. with yourself on some level. And kind of, as you say in this book, questioning what is it that I'm enjoying or continuing to enjoy about these works Mm. now that I know what I know about them? Can I, you know, am I going to still dance and jam to Michael Jackson, or me, you say, you come out and say that you just can't listen to those Cosby records anymore. You know, you, you admit that, that there's a line maybe for each of us and that line is different, but I'm very interested in this idea of, okay, you know, collective action is a problem and you're right. enough people have to do it for it to have an effect, but don't we all have a responsibility, you know, for each of us ourselves For it to begin
1: there? So I think we do, right? And I think we do have an obligation to try to be, I mean, this is is a very hand-wavy obligation, right? But to think of a way to be uh, better people, right? This is like uh, uh, the good place, like they're just going to try to improve as a person. Um, And I considered that kind of response to the problem of immoral artists in chapter three, right? And that's the one that gets, it's a little more technical and it's a little bit about thinking of developing virtues, specifically the uh, the virtue of being the kind of person who would um, understand where a victim is coming from, right? The un- understand uh, the, be also the sort of person that somebody could confide in. And I think we do have an obligation to do that, right? And this is also the point in the book. I said, this is the place where I get the closest to saying, like, sometimes it's not going to be okay, right, to engage with the art of an immoral artist. Here though, and this is a really philosopher's kind of distinction, right? Like because we like to like draw the lines as finely as possible, I think we can distinguish between engaging with their artwork and what engaging with their artwork expresses. right? And I think most of the ethical issue is about what it expresses, right. So like for example, um, about 15 years ago, it seemed really common, at least in my social circles, for people to have elaborately choreographed dances at weddings, like for the bridal party, right, like they would do something. Fun. And a lot of people were doing the thriller dance, mostly because it's hilarious. And instantly recognizable to have, you know, the bride and the groom doing the zombie arms and uh, doing the steps. And you could see right now, like that would not go over well right now. Actually, it might now. It's 2022. It wouldn't happen 2019. Right. So I wonder sometimes about like people's, you know, going back through their old bridal videos and whether they cringe about it. Right. But I think like the problem isn't like with listening to thriller or even dancing to it. Um, It's in that context what you're expressing m- would be a certain insensitivity toward victims. And that's what you're trying to avoid. Right. So the reason that there isn't like a blanket prohibition on like, don't listen to the art of, uh, you know, my, uh, the music of Michael Jackson or laugh at, at comedy like that is that I think it's often very uh, determined by context. Right. So you could have contexts, um, where, uh, everybody is say, critically on the same page. You you, and your uh, Woody Allen fan club friends are getting together to watch his movies, but you're also setting aside some time to talk about what you think about uh, Dylan Farrow's allegations, right? That seems like a context in which like, you can be very clear what you're expressing is not that you don't believe her or that you don't believe victims, but that you're trying to wrestle with it, right? And I think that um, what's expressed can vary very much by context, right? So I think I say at one point, like, maybe don't blast R. Kelly out the windows and your college campus right now, because that's going to be perceived, I think correctly as being insensitive to um, survivors of sexual assault, right? On the other hand, I think I mentioned this too, you know, about a year later, I'm driving around in my car and uh, I'm sure this is true everywhere, but Utah in particular really loves Halloween and haunted houses and it's like a thing here. So every so the radio, right, ordinary radio station is like full of advertisements for haunted houses and half of them start with the opening chords and then the baseline of thriller, right? And so this is like October of 2020. You know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And of course, I'm like finishing up the draft of the book on this and reworking it. So I hear it and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't believe they're still playing it. Nobody else cares, right? Why? Well, got the context shifted, right? So it probably would have been inappropriate um, right as the documentary was coming out to be, you know, you know I don't know, going around blasting the music. But at Halloween, like there's like three Halloween songs, and one of them's Monster Mash, right? And at at the end, you've got to play, play thriller then. So I think a lot of it's by context, right? Um the so I, th- I guess the way to say it is, I think there's generally an obligation to try to become a better person, right? To become more virtue, to, be- to develop the, the virtue of epistemic justice, to try to be a more, to try to be sensitive, right? But I don't think that that means in most cases, or it'd or, or say as a general rule, that means you can't engage with the work of immoral artists because a lot of that's going to depend on context, right? You're an art historian. You've got to talk about Gauguinne. Otherwise, you're kind of not doing your job, right? You could talk about him in different ways, though, right? You could talk about him in ways that, um, you know, uh, make manifest the colonialist nonsense behind uh, what he decided to paint. You can uh, critique it, right? But those are all forms of engagement, right? And I think that, and there are also contexts where maybe it wouldn't be um, appropriate, Yeah, uh, you know?
0: I've tried it both ways since, since you bring it up. You know, I've tried, I think, and have successfully just completely avoided talking about him altogether in courses, you know, where we're going through modern art or going through the survey of, of the masterpieces of the last 500, 600 years. And I think there are other artists you can put in his place to talk about post-impressionism. And then some years I've done it, like you said, and and assigned articles. And there are some, you know, that, that really try to draw out, the problems, the difficulties, the what do we do surrounding Gogam? I think what I also found really interesting, and as you say, there's a lot in this third chapter, it's very technical, and maybe it was the one that I liked the most because there was so much to kind of grapple with, but you were starting to get at a little bit in in your response to my question what comes up at the end of this chapter in terms of the distinction you make between public and private enjoyment. And I want to make sure we get this in. I know we're running out of time, but you say it's really important to distinguish between privately engaging with an artwork, which I guess is like listening to R. Kelly with your windows rolled up or with your headphones (laughs) on on, versus semi-publicly engaging with an artwork and versus publicizing that you're engaging with an artwork. Um, And you say that, quote, aesthetically appreciating a beloved artwork by oneself doesn't undermine the Me Too movement because the act of appreciating doesn't communicate anything without an audience and I was so struck by this and again I thought hmm by this rationale it's fine if you look at and enjoy Gauguin's paintings of naked 13 year old girls that he raped as long as you do it in the like a dark room by yourself like wait well, a minute so maybe wait not a minute, dark minute. Room by yourself <laughs> that
1: would be really weird right <laughs> I mean but that but that would be right. an example of, of private it would an, enjoyment. Private, right? But it wouldn't express anything, right? So I mean, my, my claim, <laughs> no, this is good. Uh, my claim is that the context matters a lot in terms of what an act of appreciating or engaging with an artwork expresses, right? So the Gauguin case is weird because most of us wouldn't look, I mean, like I. I mean, we don't have Gauguin painting. Like it's not a private thing, they're, they're museums, right? So the museum context is different. But think about um, like showing the pictures uh, as you might in a classroom, right? Where you are working very hard as an art historian to contextualize this. So you're like post-impressionist, blah, blah, blah. mangoes and exploitation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And this is why this is important. And that seems like a case where, you know, it's not that it's going to be easy or there aren't going to be, you know, people who uh, might be upset or feathered, but it's a case where you can say like, look, we are engaged in a project of scholarly exploration and, we can be responsive to that. It's very different, I think, than having a, um, you know, an art exhibition, like a museum, right? Where it's like this person is worth looking at. That's a different kind of expressive act. So for me, I think that uh, you know, uh, with uh, I mean, the reason I use music here is it's the kind of thing you can put headphones on without it, you know, sounding extremely contrived. I don't think you'd be harming anybody, um, or necessarily even harming your own soul if you were listening to R. Kelly on your headphones. But I think you'd have a very hard time uh, playing it in a uh, public context, while being able to control what you express by it. And so what I wanted to do in this third chapter is be mindful that like, what you express might not be what you intend, right? Like you might be intending like, hey, this is just a great track. But the what you express by the action that you undertake um, isn't entirely up to you, right? Uh, It's it's determined by context, by what other people think, by, you know, how this normally goes in your culture, for example. Um, And I think that being sensitive to that, I think is where a lot of the real ethical work is done. And what I want to say is that, again, I think that this is a case where like the consumer's problem is actually pretty small. It's very circumscribed. Right? I'm listening to it. I'm looking at it. I'm enjoying it. I'm reading it. It's more about like, do I allow my uh, Spotify playlist back when you could get them on Spotify um, to like post to my Facebook feed? Right. Without any context. Do I, uh, you know, I was like, do people make mixtapes anymore? But that's like the analogy that comes to mind. Like would I put it on a mixtape for a friend, would I recommend it um, enthusiastically or would I you know, caveat it a little bit. Right. Um, and I think that like, that's often where the ethical question is, right. It's about how we create a constructive environment for other people. And again, it's a very philosopher's sort of distinction, right. To say that sometimes, sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter that much. And in those cases, it's really hard to say that there's an ethical obligation not to. Um, but, um, back to the again case, um, aside from it being weird to look at a painting in the dark in a closet. um, I think one of the hard things about that case is that it does seem like the harm is in the artwork in a way that a lot of the other examples aren't right. The harm is not, not just that he painted some, like if he had painted, I don't know, still lifes, right. He just painted grapes or something. It wouldn't seem, it would be like, okay, I'll look at the grapes and this guy's a, a jerk and maybe we can talk about it. But I think that because of, you know, how the exploitation basically ends up on the canvas for him. It makes it very different um, and makes the um, makes it a little harder. I think intuitively to get your head around. and like, well, why would you be doing that by yourself? Right. Um, but I think if you think that the ethics attaches mostly to what you're expressing to other people, right. And whether you're um, and in the third chapter, whether you can like engage with this artist's artwork while trying to be a good person on your own, I think um, most of the time, private engagement isn't really the issue. It's about, do you put Michael Jackson on the playlist for the end of the year elementary school party? Um, should the marching band play, I believe I can fly as part of their halftime show? Um, should the museum, uh, you know, show the traveling Gauguin expedition should he be part of the I don't know like around here they're doing like the 3D do yoga and the light projection things are really popular should Gauguin get one I don't think so. I think that would be a really, really weird situation to do yoga, right? Um, But like, that's the question, right? The question is how we react, again, in institutions and in these contexts. Um, So, yeah, public private isn't always necessarily the right way to think of the distinction, although it's convenient shorthand for thinking about like where you have control over the context of expression, right? About what gets expressed by uh, your decision to engage with an artwork.
0: Well, I have taken up a lot of your time, I appreciate you grappling with some of these questions that the book left me with, but I want to ask you the traditional quick last question here on New Books Network, which is, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to coming out in the future from you?
1: Well, I've just wrapped up a series of articles. These are more academic in the British Journal of Aesthetics on the problem of ethics and immoral art, which actually takes up some of these questions about expressiveness and uh, publicity and where do we go from here. I'm also right now thinking more about some of the stuff that I introduced in the sixth chapter about what it means to have an aesthetic commitment or a project and how the art that we choose to love or the practices that we Uh, choose to undertake, shape our lives, and what it means to have an aesthetic outlook on a life. Um, It's not quite sure what I'm doing with it yet, actually. I'm in the fun, experimental exploring stages of uh, reading and thinking and writing down ideas and tossing half of them out. But that's where I think I'm going at the moment.
0: Those are fun stages. Well, we will look forward to seeing that work come out. Mary Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. I've had a lot of fun. All right, everybody, you have been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alison Lee, and I've been talking to Mary Beth Willard about her new book, Why It's Okay to Enjoy the Work of Immoral Artists. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can contact me through my website at alison-lee.com or find me on Instagram at Professor Lee. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.